Welcome to Happiness 2.02 podcast. I'm your host, John Tuckums, founder, author, World Government Summit participant, and Forbes featured TEDx speaker, an inquisitive human who loves root knowledge. Happiness 2.02 is a mental health show for entrepreneurs that provides the full human cognition and the full breathing oxygen tools to rapidly shift states of mind and increase energy. Podcast guests include organization founders, world-renowned executives, MDs, PhDs, and remarkable leaders who have incredible stories and are helping billions of people to find their happiness oxygen. You're listening to Happiness 2.02. This is your host, John Tuckums. You're listening to episode 22 with Dr. Isaac Pileltensky. Isaac is a keynote speaker, best-selling author, and vice provost for institutional culture and professor at the University of Miami. While you're listening to this podcast, if anything stands out to you as thought-provoking or remarkable, take a screenshot and write down what you've heard from Isaac. Post the insight on social media, text the idea to a friend, or email what you've learned to a family member. Get this information out there. Without further ado, episode 22 of Happiness 2.02 podcast with Dr. Isaac Pilatensky. Isaac, time is a finite resource. Underline everything that you do across your life, your leadership, your books, your speaking engagements. Why do you do what you do? Ultimately, what drives you at your core? Well, John, there are three values that really drive what I do. These are the values of wellness, fairness, and the bridge between these two values, which is mattering. I ask myself, am I fostering one of these three values in what I do? And if I am, then it's a go. And if it's not, I have to rethink what I do. So you're right, time is a finite resource. So I want to make sure that what I do is in line with the core values in my life. So let let me say a word or two about uh, how do I feel that I am mattering? You know, that what I do matter, that it has meaning and significance, which I think is what everybody is asking themselves. So mattering is really about two things, feeling valued and adding value. And whatever I do, I want to make sure that I'm adding value either to myself, others, work, or the community at large. And what happens is that when I add value to any one of these four domains, then I feel valued. (laughs) I feel valued by myself if I'm learning a new skill or writing a new book or launching a new educational program at the University of Miami. And when you're contributing, basically, it comes back to you. So then you feel valued. So whatever I do in these four domains, adding value to self, others, work, and community, it's going to pay you back. And that creates a virtuous cycle. And just one more word about the other two values of wellness and fairness. Our research has shown, and I feel it, and I think a lot of people feel it as well, that when you experience fairness in your life, in your relationships, in your community, at work, you feel that you matter. So we found out in our studies that fairness predicts a sense of mattering because 
you feel valued, you add value, and in turn, when you feel like you matter, your well-being goes up. <laughs> so, so this is a very important mm. triangle between wellness, fairness, and mattering. Um, and I think it's a good balance between paying attention to yourself and paying attention to others. It's not enough to feel valued without adding value. It's not enough to add value to yourself without adding value to others. So in this construct of mattering, feeling valued and adding value, there are checks and balances so that you don't become an egotistical, selfish narcissist. It's all about adding value to yourself. So that's how I like to think about what I do. I want to balance, balance how I contribute to myself and the development of others. Mm, I love that. And if you could share with the audience too, just as part of your journey, and it might've been in uh, elementary school or middle school, uh, because not a lot of kids, uh, maybe early on, they have that awareness in terms of you know giving back to others. You remember early on in, in terms of your career or even your school, middle school, elementary school, where uh, you had some moments in time where you're like, okay, I know that this is something I'm really interested in doing. And now you're, you're manifesting in the work that you're doing. Uh, but as, as part of your experience, if you could share with the audience some it's kind of your earlier yes, influences. Yes, for sure, John. Uh, I lost my parents in a car accident when I was eight years old. Um, mm. Both died instantaneously. Uh, that was in Argentina. My dad had just uh, purchased a partnership in a hotel near Iguazu Falls. It was like... Eight, ten hours drive from our home in Cordoba, in one of those business trips, you know, they had an accident. And I learned a lot from that experience. I felt that I didn't matter. I felt uh, unreasonably, but I felt shame. I was different. Um, and there was a lot of hurt and suffering associated with that. And I remember growing mm. up thinking, eh, when I become an adult, eh, I would like to help other people go through difficult situations. So eventually I became a psychologist. I first became a child clinical psychologist, and then I, I progressed, I think, into being a community psychologist. So first I started working with individuals and families. But then I realized that a lot of the challenges these people had had to do with the circumstances of their lives. And this is why I started paying more attention to contextual factors, uh, which led me to become more interested in community circumstances, eventually, uh, helping me promote this um, scholarship on the connection between wellness and fairness. So, you know, it was hurt. It was a pain, psychological pain uh, growing up that made me feel, I don't want other people to go through this without coping skills, without help. And I think that was a very formative experience uh, that, um, I, I think I, I became quite resilient. I had support 
I was adopted by an aunt with my three siblings. <laughs> my aunt w- was a widow. She had three mm. kids. She adopted three more. We were all poor, but <laughs> it was a, a nurturing environment. Mm, absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, can you share maybe with the audience, if we could just go just a little bit deeper, kind of some of those earlier experiences that you're going through this incredibly challenging time, uh, just a horrific experience, and then really uh, you're internalizing a lot of uh, you know shame, hurt. Uh, can you share with the audience, if you can, just some of those earlier experiences that you remember where you started you finding that helping other people, it might have been uh, you know as part of a community event with your aunt or some circumstance where with that, we really felt that was starting to help to get through just the earliest kind of tastes of uh, mm-hmm. you know, helping others, you know, to really just start moving through some of the stuff that you'd, yes. help, you'd held on to. Um, keep in mind, I grew up in Argentina uh, in the 60s and 70s, mm. where there was a fascist dictatorship. And mm. it wasn't because I was politically precautious, just because there was so much oppression and repression all around us that many youngsters like me became involved in youth movements, you know, to resist uh, the fascist uh, military dictatorship. So I became involved in idealistic causes. Uh, So I was part of the youth movement. It was a, a movement that aspired to resist oppression. Uh, and that made me feel valued. Uh, and I had an opportunity to add value. Uh, so apparently I had some uh, good work habits and maybe interpersonal skills. And I was a good soccer player and I had good friends. Mm. So I became um, a young leader in the youth movement. And I think this is incredibly important because it helped me to focus on something outside myself. Uh, And we organized activities for the younger generation. And uh, you can extrapolate that to, you know, religious uh, congregations or uh, basically fighting for a cause. Uh, and our cause was freedom from oppression. I was Jewish. I'm mm. still Jewish. I grew up Jewish. And uh, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in Argentina, which only solidified uh, our sense of belonging to an oppressed community. This was not too, too long uh, after the Holocaust in the Second World War. Mm. Uh, So my affiliation with the the Jewish community was a great source of strength. Eventually, I moved to Israel. Then I moved to Canada, Australia. We started, my wife and I moved around quite a bit to explore the world. But at a young age, I would say the affiliation with the youth movement, being a young leader, gave me an opportunity to, to be part of the cause and to help others, what nowadays would be called civic engagement, you know, youth civic engagement, incredibly mm-hmm. important. Yeah, tremendous. Thank you so much for sharing and that, that uh, you know, really building that strength and, and adding value to other, other uh, children. 
probably is tremendously important in terms of, you know, just, uh, you know, your exposure to suffering, but also kind of building that strength and sharing knowledge that uh, you've learned for yourself and through the organization with others that are going through similar type circumstances. I was wondering too, as part of that journey, uh, if there's any particular mentors, it might've been kind of a senior uh, youth leader, or it sounds like your aunt played an important role in terms of that mentorship as part of your journey. Uh, if you could share with the audience just a little bit, that'd be fantastic. Yes. So. Um, I, I have to say that um, unlike many other people, it's not easy for me to identify um, a, a, a close mentor that I that I had growing mm. up. Um, my aunt was a very dedicated uh, surrogate mother. <laughs> you know, uh, she was uh, fantastic in the way that she instilled the importance of education in all of us, the six of us. You know, my three siblings, my three cousins. All of us we live together. But I derived a great deal of inspiration from reading and studying. So mm. what I could not find really in a, a clear um, adult or mentor that would have taken me under their wing, I really grew a lot of inspiration from reading and studying the history and the philosophy of great um, thinkers. So, for example, I remember in, in university, I, I was fascinated by Eric Fromm, you know, an early psychologist, a Jewish psychologist from Germany, who, like many others, had to escape uh, to the US. And I always uh, had this sense of awe when I would discover a, an author that would really speak mm. uh, to my values and my passion and my interests. Uh, so I've had a few um, mentors over the years, but I think that I, I received better mentorship when I was an adult than when I was a kid, actually. Um, yeah. So I think the importance here is to find inspiration where you can get it, you know, even if, if it's not from an individual, is you have to go with your strengths. And one of my strengths, which was actually confirmed when I did the, the strengths inventory, is what they call intellection, which is basically, you know, it's like you enjoy the world of ideas. Uh, and that did it for me. When I grew up, then I found more kindred spirits. Uh, and in university, I found an older mentor. Uh, but interestingly, I didn't have great mentors until I grew up. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I just love that, uh, uh, you know, just finding that inspiration where you can get it because it's it's not always uh, the same for, you know, every person at, at every mm -hmm. time in their life. They have to find their own inspiration and it can be out of a book or it can be from a person. I'd love to have you describe that. Can you share with the audience, just shifting gears a little bit, um, what experiences uh, you've gone through this amazing journey, incredible hardships, uh, you really 
uh, developing this incredible you know, curiosity with ideas and you're finding these inspirations, uh, you know, these, these people that you kind of you relate to tremendously through reading and you're going into um, in kind of your university kind of career. Uh, so what are some of the experiences that get you into pinnacle states or flow states or experiencing flow? You know, I know you mm-hmm. talked about soccer a little bit. You talked about reading too as well, but I'd love to hear some of the, some of the things that uh, get you into yes. that state. So, I think I, I I was meant to be a student and a professor all my life. So I think I'm in the right profession because I, I really enjoy reading and writing. Um, and I do two types of writing that get me into a state of flow. <laughs> One, I write humor. And I've written you know, many humor articles for newspapers. And recently my wife and I published a trilogy. It's called The Laughing Guides, combining Mm. humor with science to promote well-being. And if your readers are interested, if your listeners are interested, they can visit thelaughingguide.com. So so let's talk about humor for a second. when I sit down and I begin brainstorming ideas about writing a humor column, um, it's a very creative process. And I really enjoy the brainstorming with myself, the incubation period, uh, until something uh, gels, until uh, you play with ideas, um, trial and error, try this way, try that way. But eventually, you you begin to trust the process that something will come out at the end of the day. And a similar process mm-hmm. I, I undertake when I write the nonfiction scholarly work, um, which is what I've done a lot of in my career. So it's, it's playing with ideas, uh, brainstorming, d- doing diagrams, images, I think in pictures. I'm a very visual learner. I draw images, diagrams, figures, uh, tables. Um, When I'm trying to come up with a creative way to integrate different ideas. So so what gets my juices going uh, is reading widely Mm. and and then synergizing what I've read, what I've studied, into a new way of understanding a problem, of understanding the world, uh, society, personal challenges. So it's this going from di- divergence to convergence. You know, uh, you start with yep. divergent sources of inspiration. And I really enjoy the process of converging and creating, uh, writing a book, writing an article, and seeing how that comes to life. Mm, absolutely love that. I love the way that you described uh, divergence to convergence and then you know, really synthesizing those ideas. If you could share with the audience uh, what uh, it feels like in terms of your breathing or uh, that creative space that you get into. Sometimes it's hard to put into words, but if you can, as best as possible, when you know, kind of your juices are flowing, where you know that creative process is underway, you kind of share with the audience what that feels like for yourself. It's really quite in line with uh, what uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi described as flow. 
uh, which is you tune out the world and it's a hyper concentrated state in which you 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 are reinforcing yourself by going through a process that you know it's hard but you also know that at the end of the day it delivers a good product so mm. when i teach my students how to write i force them to go through this process of writing an outline critiquing the outline thinking of alternatives seeing the through line and I so enjoy that, both the incubation, the conceptualization, as well as the execution of writing, that I can sit for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And I force myself to stand up. I have a standing desk. Mm. I force myself to take little walking breaks. I have a stepper next to my desk. I'm looking at it now. <laughs> um, and yeah. so... I think there is a method to the creativity, and I think that's important. I don't believe in having a muse. It doesn't work for me. Maybe other people have it. I doubt very much that when you, when you read about how people create and how people get into a state of flow, it's very rarely through a muse. You know, it's hard work, mm. um, but you have to know what process to use to get into flow. So for example, our son is a chess master and he also mm. is a very successful chess coach in the New York area. Well, let me tell you, uh, there's no musing learning chess. It's hard work. You have to read, you have to fail, uh, but eventually you develop processes that they force you to be disciplined about the creative space and I really believe in that so we can get later into how to develop productive habits and routines which is all part of being creative mm, absolutely lovely I love the way that you describe that and uh, it's really finding that method that uh, uh, you set up the right parameters around that really, and it's uh -huh. not an easy process. It's, uh, it's really getting to that, that, uh, you know, that ultimate state by setting up a certain sequence, uh -huh. which is absolutely uh -huh. amazing the way that you described it there. If I could shift gears a little bit, and you kind of touched upon this a little bit, uh, what are some of the small things that you do to maintain happiness or uh, well-being in your personal life? Mm -hmm. your life has its ups and downs. And you talked about mm -hmm. little walking breaks. Uh, it might be the way that you start off the day. That might be the way that you finish off your day. If you could share with the audience uh, yes, some insights, yes, that'd be course. great. Uh, let me say a word or two about how I think about well-being in general, uh, because I think it's important for, for the question you're asking. There are six Perfect. domains of well-being that my research team and I have developed and we have a survey to measure it and we validated the instrument and we call our well-being model I-COPE with double P and it stands for interpersonal well-being, community, occupational, physical, psychological and economic well-being. So these are all the I cope with the double P domains of well-being. Mm -hmm. And I, I try to nurture 
all of them. So if you think about it in terms of an investment, you think about your well-being and you ask yourself, well, how do I promote my well-being? My recommendation is that you diversify your energy and your time. We'll go back with the question you opened. Time is a finite resource. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure that I invest some of my time in interpersonal well-being, community, occupational, physical, psychological, and economic. So for me, it's very important to start the day with physical well-being at the top of the scale. So I, I, I eat very healthily. You know, I, I describe myself as a 98% vegan. Yep. And the 2% is because yep. once a week I eat fish. <laughs> That's what I did. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So I start with a healthy breakfast. I exercise for an hour every morning before I sit down to work. That keeps my uh, well-being uh, in a productive state. I invest in my relationships. Um, I live with my wife. Our son is grown up but we keep in touch with him often and i try to you know uh, add value to my work so that's the mm. occupational well-being uh, i'm pleased i'm well compensated so i'm very privileged uh, so but, but i try to pay attention to all the different domains of well-being so i think it's important to diversify our approach to well-being because there are people who treat their bodies like a shrine and they are interpersonal um, incompetent, okay? So yep. you see a lot of people like that who really pay a lot of attention to physical well-being, but they neglect relationships. Or you can find people for whom occupational well-being is at the top of their priorities, but they neglect their families or they neglect their emotional well-being. So I really think it's important to invest in all the I cope domains and I have routines to do all of that. So I think I, I automate my life in a sense so that I'm more productive, mm -hmm. right? So I spend time with my wife, we do things together. I, I have a pretty disciplined life, you know, no day without exercise. I eat well every single day of my life. I sleep very well. Uh, I prevent back problems. So I think it's important to, as much as it doesn't sound uh, exotic, it, it's routines and habits that keep me uh, productive and happy. Fantastic. And as part of that uh, uh, diversifying, uh, could you share with the audience anything, any ways that you finish off your day? I'd love to hear just a little bit because uh, uh, you're going to talk yeah, about the start yeah, of your day. Good question. So um, now during the pandemic, we, we're really taking good uh, health care of ourselves because uh, my wife has a disability. She uses a wheelchair and she has mm. limited lung capacity. So we're extremely careful which means we have been home pretty much all the time for the last five months. <laughs> um, so, but I have some exercise equipment at home. So, but it has enabled us to spend more time together. And usually at night we read uh, one next to the other. We sit down and 
read or we watch some mm. series that we like. Um, and we try to go to bed at a similar time and, and I read. And I try not to do too much computer at night. Um, and I don't eat, you know, I we pretty much we finish eating around 6.30. And then uh, mm. I, I like to go to sleep uh, without feeling full, you know. So, so these are routines. Um, I never drink alcohol, which I think I'm very happy <laughs> with the way my life is going <laughs> without, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, without any alcoholic drinks. Um, so, yeah, I like to read when I go to bed and I sleep like a baby. <laughs> I Also, in the evening, I yeah. like to do some walking before I go to bed too. So it's a way of winding down, you know, a way of just, uh, we meditate also, but we tend to meditate usually in the morning. But these are little activities that keep you healthy. Yeah, absolutely love it. Uh, uh, just as a follow-up kind of question, um, and I think it ties so you know, in terms of your own personal journey and as, as uh, really the, you know, the stuff that you've uh, learned to implement in your own life. Could you share with the audience too, uh, some of the projects that you're working on? Because uh, you, you get this amazing sense of you that, uh, you know, all, all this stuff that you're working on, you talked about that process of, uh, you know, what goes in or what goes out in terms of your life direction. It's really defined by purpose and this underlying mission across your life. If you'd share with the audience some of the, uh, the, the projects that you're currently working on. Yes, thank you, uh, John. Uh, so my wife and I have collaborated on a number of projects. Uh, she's also a psychologist. And we, we just finished a new book on mattering. It's called How People Matter, Why It Affects Health, Happiness, Love, Work, and society. And mm. we're really excited about this project. The, the book is going to be published in a few months by Cambridge University Press. And what we're really invested in is providing people not only with an understanding of how people matter, but also with the strategies for how to matter, how to matter in your personal life, in your relationships, at work, and in the community at large. I think this is a very important topic. And I think what we bring to this discussion is the emphasis on skill development. Mm. Okay, so this is another strand that I think you're picking up from our conversation. Is I, I do not believe just in inspiration I think it's important to help people translate the purpose and meaning into actions. And, and I think perhaps the psychologist in us uh, really pays attention to skill development and helping people not just understand the problem, but also to act upon an issue. Uh, so our current project is to work with organizations and communities to improve both their well-being and their productivity and effectiveness uh, by understanding how to matter, how to feel valued, and how to add value. 
So this is our current project. They were now developing some ancillary materials to the book, and we're now in conversations with a large um, organization to begin the process of helping them enhance both productivity uh, and the well-being uh, of their employees. I also do some personal coaching and mentoring related to to these issues of mattering and well-being. So we're very excited about that. And if some of your listeners are interested in another project we developed, um, again, because we believe it's important to impart skills, we created the humor, a, a fun platform. It's called funforwellness.com. Mm. Uh, where we, we conducted two randomized control trials of this intervention, which is all self-administered. You do it on your own pace. It's free, uh, available 24-7, funforwellness.com. Uh, so we wanted to use fun and video games, case studies, vignettes with real actors. So that's another way in which people can... Uh, promote their own, their own wellness. So it's uh, what we call giving psychology away. Uh, so that's another project we were really interested in. And as I said, we conducted two studies, one with a healthy population, one with a population of people with weight problems. And we have seen improvements in uh, different areas of well-being and physical activity. So we're pretty excited about that too. Mm, absolutely amazing. And, and with uh, as it relates to these projects, uh, you talked about that one location. And uh, what are some of the other locations where people can find you uh, across LinkedIn or Facebook? Or are there other locations that people can stay up to date on your work? Yes, sure. So I have a website. It's called professorisaac.com. Uh, Isaac with I-S-A-A-C, <laughs> professorisaac.com. Um, people can also find me at the University of Miami. I have a simple email, isaac at miami.edu. Again, I-S-A-A-C at miami.edu. If you, people go to my website, professorisaac.com, they can see some of the work I've done. Uh, I have a blog. <laughs> writing about the uh, mattering in life and at work. Um, and I also have a humor blog at thelaughingguide.com. Perfect. As part of this amazing journey where you've gone through uh, just uh, you know, early on in your childhood, uh, just a horrific experience and uh, really finding, uh, you know, ways to give back early on as the organizations that uh, uh, that you're a part of and really, uh, you know, spurring that intellectual curiosity and, and finding kind of inspiration in, in authors that you're learning about and now being in a position that you're creating these programs that are uh, that are impacting not only individuals but organizations. Uh, do you have any parting words for the audience in terms of, uh, you know, how really they can start taking those early steps to b- start building those skills that really leads to, you know, those higher states of happiness and, and well-being? Yeah, so um, I... I- I was dean of a school at the University of Miami for 11 and a half years. I was the dean of the School of Education and Human Development. Now I'm the vice provost for institutional culture at the University of Miami. And 
Something I learned in trying to improve the well-being of an organization is the importance of having structures in place to be methodic about recruiting your partners in your journey towards uh, happiness, health, productivity. It's impossible uh, to change personal and or collective behavior without sustainability practices. You cannot really sustain any change effort by yourself. Uh, you need allies in the process. So at the University of Miami, we started the process in 2013 to improve our institutional culture. And after four years of regular meetings with the culture leadership team, made up of about 12 leaders at the university, we brought the university to be ranked by Forbes as the number one employer in the education sector in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, but we were very methodic, very disciplined, and we had involvement from the leaders of the university, the president and the provost. And we retrained 9,000 employees in person on values and behaviors and safe service standards and leadership expectations. So my message is this, it requires a plan. Just like I tell my students, you can't write a paper or a book or a dissertation without a very thorough outline. You cannot improve the health of an organization without commitment and a method. And it's been seven years of this journey at the University of Miami. And it's been challenging, but very rewarding at the same time. And if there was one moment during this journey that really inspired me was when I would ask my colleagues at the university, tell me how you add value to the University of Miami. And that simple question resulted in incredible inspirational stories. And, and a lot of our colleagues said, nobody had asked me that question before. Nobody had asked me how I add value to the students, to my colleagues, to the patients that we serve in our great healthcare system. So the mere act of involving your colleagues, your employees in the process of becoming a healthier, better, more productive organization. Nothing happens without participation from your colleagues and you have to give them a voice in the process of change. You have to give them voice and choice. They have to feel that they are adding value to the organization, that they are visible, and that they feel valued by themselves and others. It's impossible to move a project forward without you feeling personally rewarded and providing reinforcements and and recognition to your colleagues. Mm, absolutely amazing. 
Isaac, thank you for your leadership, your books, your speaking engagements, and all the happiness oxygen you bring to the world. And a tremendous thank you to all the listeners. As always, this has been your host, John Tuckums. You have made it to the end of the podcast. It's your host, John Tuckums. I want to take this moment to sincerely thank you. I'm incredibly grateful for the time you're taking to invest in your life. And if you gain something valuable from this episode and want to give me value somehow, I would tremendously appreciate if you went to Apple Podcasts, iTunes. If you have an Apple product where you listen to this podcast and leave this show a review, you are free to send me a message or email. Contact information is in the description below. Thank you again for listening and thank you for your contributions in helping billions of people to find their happiness oxygen.